Hey there, my name is Jonathan Galvan, and I'm one of the pastors at Redeemer. Uh, we're so glad that you're tuning in to this sermon, and we pray that this sermon would be an encouragement to you. So please enjoy. Good morning, Redeemer Church. It's an honor to be with you this morning. Um, like Jason said, I grew up on a cotton farm about one hour north of here. West Texas is home. I enjoyed the sunset and sunrise. It's the most beautiful place on earth. 20 minutes every morning, 20 minutes every night. Um, I've known Jason for going on 23 years now. And just let me say, you are privileged and blessed as a church to have him at the helm, uh, leadership as a student. He was exceptional, helped us grow a ministry from nothing to strong in his short time in community college, but since then has become a dear friend, for a while a fellow college minister, um, and now a pastor who I look up to and respect a lot, Jonathan Galvan. Also, we knew each other from the... Metroplex, but uh, just before I begin, let me say it's so such an honor to be here. I'm also a proud graduate of Angelo State University. Go Rams, 11 and one in football this year. If you pay attention to that sort of thing. But as we get going, let's say the most important thing: nothing matters more than knowing Jesus. Nothing in this life, nothing at all, matters more than knowing Jesus. And helping other people know Jesus is loving and it's urgent. And there's no greater endeavor, no greater task that we can give time and energy to than helping this lost world see its savior for who he is and to have a chance to respond. So my little ministry in Arlington on the campus of UT Arlington, it's a tough ministry context, third most diverse campus in the United States of America, most diverse in Texas. Our ethnic pie chart is equal slices of every type of person. Um, it, we're a commuter campus. We're an urban campus. It's a tough place to do ministry. But 10 years ago, through the witness of ordinary young men and women, who said, I want to be just a little bit more intentional and a little bit more bold for Christ. We started seeing students respond to the gospel every week, one or two or three, every week. And that trend has continued for 10 years. And here's the thing. In that 10 years, we've seen almost 400 students make a profession of faith, but it wasn't me who won them to faith. It wasn't trained ministers. It wasn't evangelists. It was ordinary men and women who said, I want to live an outward focused life with my neighbors, my friends, my coworkers. And one at a time as they shared, people believed and entered God's kingdom. So here's a question. Why are you in Midland? There's a lot of places to live that aren't Midland. Why Midland? What brought you here? Some of you would say family. Some would probably say business. And by business, we mean oil, right? Maybe the scenery brought you here. I don't know. But ultimately, here's the truth. God brought you here. The Apostle Paul talking to the Athenians in Acts chapter 17 says, you are not where you are. You are not here now by accident. God himself chose in fact, he said in Acts 17, 26, from one man, he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth and hear this. And he determined the times 
set for them and the exact place they should live. God did this so that men would seek him, perhaps reach out to him and find him, though he's not far from each one of us. So the message this morning will come from Mark chapter 2, 1 to 12. If you've got a Bible, you can open to there. And I want to talk about living a great commission lifestyle, sharing the gospel in a way that helps people, not hinders people from coming to Christ. We could call this message from bubbled to bold. There are three kinds of people, those who need to find God, those who help people find God, and those who hinder people from finding God. Question, have you ever been lost? Like, I'm not speaking metaphorically, spiritually, like legit lost. You're somewhere and you don't know how to get out of there. I've had that happen to me twice in my life. Once when I was a kid, we were in South Texas. My family was there for a wedding. We said we were poor. We didn't have money for entertainment. Let's take a nature walk. And because we're West Texans, we don't know how to navigate where there are trees. So we went on this nature walk in trees and we couldn't find our way back. And we had to ask for help. And one person we asked for help gave us directions that were bad directions. And we're parched and our throats are dry and we're getting nervous. And we finally find a road and a car finally says, yeah, you can just go the direction I'm going and we'll get you there. Maybe imagine your first day of high school. Some of you, that was five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 30, if you're like me, even more. Imagine your first day of high school and you're scared, you're terrified, you're insecure, and every hall in the big high school all looks the same. And so you get the bell rings, you're lost, you can't find your class, so you decide to do what only the most desperate of conditions require you ask for help and you walk up to somebody and you ask for help and you say I'm a freshman I can't find my class and they laugh in your face they roll their eyes they say freshman and they walk away no help at all imagine you go to a second person you say I'm lost can you help me find my class and their eyes light up and they laugh and they say oh my goodness I was a freshman too and I got lost and I couldn't find my classroom and they go on and on and on about their experience and how they had the same experience that you had and then they walk away and they don't actually help you find your classroom. So they were kind, but they were not helpful. And then imagine you tell somebody I'm lost and they say, I'll help you, follow me. And they guide you to where you need to go. In Mark chapter two, Jesus, in this familiar story, forgives and then heals a paralyzed man in the town of Capernaum. So as we read the story, I want you to find yourself in the story. There are five characters. One of them's Jesus. You don't get to be him. One character is the eager but thoughtless crowd. Another character is the obsessive, rule-following, religious leaders. The third are the four helpful friends. And the fourth is the paralyzed man who needed Jesus. And maybe that's where you are today. You need Jesus. Which one do you identify with? And ultimately as Christians, how can we be like the four friends who are helpful rather than a hindrance? So Mark chapter two, 
Starting in verse 1, a few days later when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door. And he preached the word to them. So here's the scene. Jesus' ministry drew crowds. His family at this point lived in Capernaum. He had come home to where his family was living. They started a few miles um, away in Nazareth. Now they were on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee in Capernaum. And people then, like today, loved Jesus. They loved to be around Jesus. On my campus, almost everybody admires Jesus. The Muslims admire Jesus. The Hindus admire Jesus. Even the non-religious, for the most part, they admire Jesus. Everybody wanted to be around him. But notice that some fans of Jesus, in their eagerness to be with Jesus, prevented others from meeting Jesus. So the first character in the story is the eager but thoughtless crowd. See, church, we can draw near to Jesus in a way that pushes others away. We can be self-centered and concerned with only my needs. What's an example? It's good to be excited about what God's doing at Redeemer and God's doing a great work here. But we can say things like, I want in-depth Bible study. I want deep community. I want a passionate worship experience. I want emotional support. I want close friends. I, I, I. Now, are all of those good things? Absolutely. But not if being concerned with those things makes me unconcerned with people on the outside. See, when Christians, when God starts to work among us, there's this natural tendency in human nature, what we might call the huddle effect. And as we get closer and closer to each other, Think of a football huddle. We draw nearer and nearer in. We feel more like a team with the people around us. We get shoulder to shoulder and no one else can break into our huddle. And we're all susceptible to it. Christians get close and then Christians get closed. We get close though. The goal is to get close to one another without pushing others away. There's always an empty seat at the table. There's always room for one more person. So question, do we eagerly attend church but never invite to church? Do we zealously pursue God but never point to God? Do we study God's word but never joyfully share God's word? Are you a fan of Jesus, but not a friend of people who need Jesus? So let's keep going. Verse three, some men came bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. So to understand what's going on here, put yourself in the story. Here's a paralyzed man in this culture. He would have been helpless. There was no social security. There was no Americans with Disabilities Act. There was no motorized wheelchair. He would have been doomed to a life of begging and only begging with the help of others to get him to the city center so he could beg. The shame and stigma that came along with being paralyzed was huge. See, this was a culture that said your sin caused your disability. And if you were that man, your disability would eventually become your identity. Maybe some of you can relate. Maybe you, maybe a friend has a struggle, 
a sin struggle. Maybe you have trauma in your past. Maybe you have family issues that are just overwhelming. And those things can become your identity rather than Christ. So let's keep going. Verse 4. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. Now, this is an unexpected, outrageous, and even funny scene. Now, what's going on is it's not permanent property damage. This would have been a thatched roof with sticks and reeds on the top. It would have been easy to repair. But imagine being inside the room. It is crowded shoulder to shoulder, a little bit dusty. People crowded as close as they can get to Jesus, peering through the windows, sitting in the doors, hanging on every word. And Jesus is teaching. I mean, imagine the scene right now. Here we are in church, and we hear a noise on the roof, a scratching sound, and we think, well, maybe it's a maintenance worker. So I keep preaching. Keep preaching a little more, and all of a sudden, the sound gets louder. It's a little distracting, but we keep going. Keep preaching, and eventually, a beam of light shines through the middle and right into the middle of the room, and now everybody's a little more distracted. And then in a second, a hole opens. Four heads look down on us. We look up. And then a man descends down from the heavens into the earth and to the feet of Jesus. It's a funny scene. It's an outrageous picture of people's willingness to help their friend meet Jesus. The people around them, these four friends, the people watching this would have thought they were a little bit weird. They were a little bit radical. This was unconventional. This was not something that proper Jewish men would have done. They were willing to sacrifice effort, their time, risk their reputation. Why? Because their friend needed what Jesus had to offer. So the second character are friends who bring a friend to Jesus. See, often we use this story in children's ministry. And that's the theme when we use it is friends bring friends to Jesus. But it's true. It's absolutely true. Be willing to struggle, be willing to sacrifice, to help a neighbor, to help a family member, to help a coworker, to help a fellow mom, to help a fellow man meet Christ. So what does it look like practically? I'll share some applications at the end, but it means at minimum praying daily for spiritual conversations, to being open to opportunities to share our faith, choosing purposely who we spend our time with, just starting conversations to share the gospel. So let's go back to the story. Remember the scene. They had gotten their friend to the feet of Jesus. He desperately wanted healing for his legs. And now's the opportunity. He's sitting at the feet of Jesus. The, the scene stops. Jesus looks at the man. Jesus had already healed many others. And it picks up verse 5. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, here it comes. His healing is right around the corner. Son, your sins are forgiven. What? Now imagine the man in his disappointment saying, with all due respect, Jesus, I came here because I'm paralyzed and you're talking about my sins. And Jesus says, with all due respect, I've given you 
what's better. See, the man had physical needs, but Jesus addressed his spiritual needs first. His biggest problem was not his legs, but his heart. I have a student in my ministry, Nate McClintock. Our university is not known for athletics, but we have one team that's won 11 national championships, the Moving Mavs wheelchair basketball team. And it's a club team, but it's part of a national network. And we have 11 national championships. Nate McClintock moved from Memphis, Tennessee to Arlington, Texas to play wheelchair basketball. He has cerebral palsy. He's been in a chair since he was really young. And he comes and he had very little church background, but was interested, curious in the gospel. So we welcomed him into our ministry. He had heard the gospel several times. We got to lead him to Christ. And after being discipled and growing in Christ, I'm sitting with Nate in my office. I'm, I'm doing some Bible study with him. And he gets teary-eyed about a year after walking with Christ. And he said, you know, honestly, I'm grateful that I was born disabled because this chair brought me to Arlington. And in Arlington, I heard the gospel. And the gospel matters more than having my legs. See, he realized his spiritual need was greater than any physical need. Your spiritual needs, a greater need than money problems, than family struggles, than anxiety or loneliness, whatever you're facing, your eternity is more important than your income, more important than your house, your car, your kids, your school, your 401k. Our sin is our biggest problem. Now let's keep going. Some teachers of the law, verse 6. Teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? See, Jesus has a cool party trick, mind reading. Jesus read their mind. And the thing is, Jesus knows your mind. He knows your mess. He knows your deepest hidden sin, and he loves you anyway. So who were these teachers that were raising an objection to Jesus? Well, they were well-trained Bible scholars tasked with helping the Jews keep the law. In fact, if you were somebody who took God seriously, you respected them. Religious teachers get a bad rap. Because in this case, guess what? They're right. No one can forgive sins against God except God. They were right. You can't forgive sin against another, yet Jesus forgave sin against God. Jesus here is implicitly claiming when he says he has authority to forgive sin against God, that he is the God who's been sinned against. He's making a claim to his deity. You know, the way this works, if say Jonathan Galvan was up here and Jason was up here and Galvan walks over to Hatch and just smiles real big and then punches him in the face. And Jason says, what's up, man? Kind of bows up. No, I'm sure he wouldn't. I'm sure he'd turn the other cheek. But he says, what's up, man? Well, I can't now say to Jonathan, 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 it's okay, it's okay, it's okay. I forgive you. Because Jason's going to say, you're not the one that got punched in the face. 
And yet we sin against our almighty, holy creator, God. And Jesus says, I, through my life, death on the cross, resurrection from the dead, I have the power to forgive you. It's beautiful. So now the third character in the story are these religious teachers. Because see, church, you can be technically right, but unhelpful. You can miss the forest for the trees. Now, some of you may lean this way. Some of you may be super into knowing facts about the Bible, super into theology or apologetics. Some of us can very easily, I confess, feel superior to sinners. We know how to debate ideas and hot topics and talk about politics. We say, I don't go party, but I judge those who do. We had this time in our ministry when we had a girl who had grown up in a really strict religious background and she comes and she joins a Bible study that we were hosting in a dorm and her dorm Bible study leader had welcomed her and had welcomed three or four girls who had a little bit of a wild background. So the five or six of them are meeting, doing Bible study, and the second week, the girls start having a conversation about a television show that they had all watched that week. And it was maybe a show that some people might find to have some objectionable content. Follow where I'm going here? And so this girl who had been raised very strictly sits here and says, I'm at a Bible study, but they're talking about that show. And she becomes enraged, infuriated, and she inviscerates. She, she condemns these girls for talking about this show and she storms out and she leaves. Well, what she didn't know is three of those girls were non-Christian girls. So she was holding them up to this standard that maybe a Christian should hold themselves to, maybe not, but they were non-Christians and she storms out and leaves. The Bible study continues and two of those three girls meet Christ that year because the Christian leader was patient with them, gave time to them, evangelized them. So you can be technically right, but be unhelpful. And these religious leaders were technically right, but they weren't helping the paralyzed man get to Jesus. In fact, they were throwing up walls. Does that mean we don't care about the truth? Absolutely not. But Paul, the apostle in 1 Corinthians 13, compares people with deep spiritual knowledge, but no love, to a clashing symbol. So let's keep going. Verse 9, Jesus says, Which is easier to say to the paralyzed man, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up, take your mat, and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. See, if Jesus had forgiven his sin and not healed his legs, he would have been infinitely better off than if Jesus had healed his legs and not forgiven his sin. We think our greatest need is immediate help when really our greatest need is reconciling with God. There's a twisted prosperity gospel out there that says God must give me health and comfort now or he's not faithful. But the truth is God will make everything right, maybe not today, but one day when he comes back a second time. So verse 12, last verse, 
The man got up, he took his mat, he walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone and they praised God saying, we've never seen anything like this. So the fourth character in the story is the one who needed forgiveness and healing from Jesus. And I don't know, but maybe there's somebody in this room and that's you. You've never turned from sin and turned to Jesus and trusted him. Have you put your faith in Jesus to heal your heart. He stood up. He heard Jesus's command. He believed Jesus. He obeyed Jesus and he stood up. Will you stand up when Jesus calls? Will you repent? Will you believe? Not long after God saved Nate, the guy in the wheelchair, we were having a campus Bible study as a crowd about this size. We were crammed into a really small room and I was in the middle of these students who were singing their hearts out, hands raised. And I walk up and here's Nate's wheelchair, but Nate's not in it. He's standing up with his hands raised. I didn't know he could do that. I didn't know if we just had a miracle healing crusade, if, a, if God had just done a book of Acts type thing here. But he's standing. So the next day I said, uh, Nate, I had a question for you. Um, what was going on with the standing thing yesterday? And he said, oh, I, I, don't, I didn't realize you didn't know that. I can stand up. It hurts physically to stand, but it's worth it to worship Jesus. Church, faith is the only thing we bring to Jesus. Our good works amount to nothing. And faith, even faith itself, isn't really a thing. It's just confidence that I have nothing to offer Jesus and Jesus has everything to offer me. So I put my trust not in me, but in him. Forgiveness costs that man nothing, but it costs Jesus dearly on the cross. So believe in him. The beautiful part of this story is we don't know the man's name. But in verse 5, Jesus calls him son. Whatever you were known for before Jesus, God wants to call you his child today. Whenever you turn to Jesus, you get a new identity for all eternity. So which person do you most identify with? The paralyzed man, it's time for me to come to Jesus. The eager but thoughtless crowd, where my focus on myself hinders people from meeting Jesus. Maybe the religious teachers, my empty religion, my judgment hinder people from meeting Jesus. But hopefully church will all identify increasingly with the four friends. I want to make, you want to make every effort to help people meet Jesus. So to close practically, what does it mean? I want to share four practical habits that you can integrate into your life to more effectively share your faith. Four practical habits to be like the four friends. Habit number one, every day pray for Bob. Who the heck is Bob, do you ask? My friend Paul Worcester says Bob is an acronym for three things, a burden for the lost, an opportunity to witness, and boldness to proclaim Christ. What if every morning when you spent a few minutes in God's word, or every evening when you spent a few minutes in God's word, you prayed these three things, one sentence each, God, give me a burden for lost people. 
See, we can get so focused on our busy schedule, we lose sight of the eternal consequences of the relationships we have. So God, burden me for lost people. Pray specifically for a few lost family or friends by name. Pray for an opportunity to witness. God, as I go about my day-to-day, I want the opportunity to testify at least one time that you're good to somebody. Pray for boldness to proclaim Christ. God, give me the courage when you give me the opportunity to take the opportunity. You know, prayer is powerful when we pray for this for two reasons. One, when we pray for a chance to share our faith, God's sovereign, he's powerful. He can answer that prayer and he can give us a chance to share our faith. He answers prayers. He really does. But it's also powerful because when I pray and I start my day with this prayer, I'm more attuned to opportunities God gives. See, if I've prayed this, otherwise, if, otherwise I might have just walked by a person, not realized, oh, this conversation could lead to a spiritual conversation. But when I pray, God, give me a chance. And then God does, I'm more likely to see it. So pray every day. Number two, take initiatives by making appointments with not yet believers every week. Now, appointment has a connotation because we go, we make appointments to go to the dentist and he drills in our mouth and it's no fun at all. But an appointment is just any time you set a time to do a thing with another person. An appointment is let's have dinner at six o'clock at my house. An appointment is, do you want to go see a movie? An appointment is, do you want to get a cup of coffee at three o'clock? And some Christians, we make so many appointments with lots of people to do lots of things. We make all of our appointments with other Christians. Make some of them with non-Christians. Number three, talk openly about spiritual things. See, I've realized that sometimes as believers, we filter when we're around non-Christians. We're hesitant to talk about what we really care about when we're with people who we're not sure care about the same things. My wife, years ago, our kids were starting kindergarten. And she started making friends with the moms, and many of them weren't Christians where we lived. And she started having a burden to share with them and she realized she was having no opportunity. And so she made a commitment. She said, I'm just going to bring up when I read something in the Bible that was good or when I've gone to church or when I've heard something that helped me. And so one day she just made a comment about how she had read something in the Bible and one of her friends standing in a group waiting to pick up the kids after school said, I've always wanted to read the Bible, but it's so confusing. And another friend said, me too. And she said, we can read the Bible together. And they started reading the Bible together. And they invited a few more moms, and it grew into this circle of moms reading the Bible together. Two of those original four women met Christ, one from a Jehovah's Witness background, one from a just basically an unchurched background. Just talk openly about spiritual things. Awkward conversations change lives. I awkwardly, in 1995 in San Angelo, asked my wife to get some ice cream at Baskin Robbins. And she said, yes. Then I asked her two months later to be my girlfriend, awkwardly, had no game at all. And she said, yes. Then I awkwardly in a park with drizzling rain asked her to be my wife. And she said, yes. Awkward conversations change lives. Have the courage to just bring up spiritual things. 
And the number four, last thing, focus on the gospel, not on secondary issues. Make it about Jesus. Don't make spiritual conversations about denominations, about theology, about politics. Heaven help us not about politics. On my campus, you bring up spiritual things and people want to talk about UFO or weed or all sorts of crazy stuff like that. Make the conversation about Jesus, the God-man who came to earth to save us from our sins. Learn to share the gospel, not religion, not morality, not just your personal experience, but Jesus. So to close, I'm going to pray. Jesus tells in Luke 15 about three lost things. A woman who tore her house apart when a precious coin was lost and then celebrated when it was found. A shepherd who left the 99 to search for the one lost sheep and a son who squandered his father's inheritance and was welcomed back. May we have the same heart for the lost that God has for the lost in Christ's name. Let's pray. Father, we come to you in the name of the one who has saved us, rescued us from our sin, from ourselves, from hell for eternity. In the name of Jesus, we thank you that he was powerful to save us, that he came to seek and save the lost. And if we claim to follow him, part of our purpose on earth is to be part of that mission to seek and save the lost. So I pray for Redeemer for the brothers and sisters in this room to have greater eyes open for lostness around them and a greater burden to share. An opportunity to do that even this week in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Redeemer Church. If you want to connect with us at Redeemer, we would love for you to visit us at a service in person or visit us online at www.redeemermidland.org.